Well, good morning. Welcome to Willingdon. We're continuing in our series, uh, Church on Fire, in the book of uh, Revelation uh, this Sunday. And uh, so you can go, the Revelation is the last book in the Bible, so it's easy to find. Turn to the end and then go to chapter 1, and that's where we will be uh, spending some time uh, this morning and over the next few weeks. Uh, This morning's message is entitled, Live in Reality. Live in Reality, and so you'll figure out what that means in in a little while here. Sometimes it's difficult, I think, for us to get a picture of reality because of the amount of uh, the sheer volume of information that's actually out there coming at us, but also misinformation that comes at us. Simple example, just in how diverse that information can be. If you watch American news, and if you watch CNN, or if you watch Fox News, you could perhaps be thinking you're watching two different countries completely, <laughs> because what's presented is so different. Uh, or it can be just very localized. So last fall, we were having a rainy day out here on the West Coast, and my sister calls me in the middle of the afternoon, I think it was a Saturday, and she's like, she's from Manitoba, and she says, are you okay? Are you guys safe? My wife and I are sitting like in the recliners in our living room looking at each other going, yeah, we're good. You know, I haven't hurt my back getting out of the recliner yet, so I'm good, you know. And she goes, well, it's, it sounds like it's disaster out there. I go, what are you talking about? Well, it's flooding everywhere. I go, really? Where? <laughs> well, I guess on the news, there was some flooding in Maple Ridge uh, some, on a heavy rain day last fall. And, uh, but of course, we were in Fraser Heights. We had no idea. My sister thought all of Fraser Valley and you know, lower mainland was underwater and that we were all floating away. So her reality was from the news, you know, Vancouver's underwater from you know, the coast to Abbotsford. And our reality was it's just a normal day. Our reality can be skewed in so many ways. For instance, you're here at Willingdon at the 10 a.m. service. So if this is always your service, you know that if you don't come early enough, you're going to have a hard time finding a seat. You know that the parking lot's going to be full and there's going to be parking attendants and they're going to say, hey, you know, unless you're a senior. And by the way, a senior is not 55 plus. (laughs) It is at McDonald's. I know that. (laughs) You know. I'm 55 plus, I can walk, so just side note. <laughs> so, you know, if you're a senior, you have, if you don't have mobility issues or some of those things, they say, hey, glad you're here. You get to go park at BCIT or Mosscrop. Woohoo! You know, or a first-time visitor, we'll have a spot for you. But, and, and you go, man, this place is busy, it's crazy, there's lineups, there's all kinds of things going on. If you come to Willingdon and your regular service is Saturday night at 6.30, you're wondering, why do we have this big building? Well, you know, a couple of hundred people are here. It seems like all this extra space is a waste. Why are they talking about parking? There's always parking here, right? There's no parking issues. There's no issues at all. You just kind of walk in the door. I'm not sure what the hallway, the sanctuary thing is. Never seen that place because, you know, they meet in the, in the connection service. So your experience of Willingdon is very tied to which service you're at. So when someone asks you, you know, if you go, oh, yeah, it's great, but man, it's overcrowded, or, or it's great, but yeah, oh, it's, it's not crowded at all. It's a piece of cake. It's like a 200-person church, right? Depends on your experience. That colors your reality. And so often our reality is so colored, so uh, inundated by our local experience, whether that's in life and work and relationships and church, that we think that is what the world is. So in our text today in the book of Revelation, John is writing to the churches of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. 
And what he's trying to get them to understand is that the reality that they are experiencing is not the real world. It's their local experience, but it's not the world that as Christ followers that he is teaching them now is, is actual what, actually what's going on. So their local context is they're living in a, a country in, in, um, ruled. Rome is being ruled by Domitian, the emperor. And Domitian has declared himself to be divine. In fact, he calls himself Lord and Savior. Is what he declared, and he wants to be worshipped as someone who is divine as the emperor. Now, Christians have a problem with that because Christ followers call Jesus Lord and Savior, which highly offends Domitian. And so, if you're not willing to publicly acknowledge Domitian as divine emperor, uh, you can't go to the marketplace and buy things. You might get thrown in jail, you may actually be uh, killed. The author of Revelation, John, because he refuses to say Domitian is Lord and Savior. He says Jesus is Lord and Savior. And so John is exiled to the island of Patmos. And that is where we pick up the story in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 1. Where John says, I, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Or... More simply put, uh, from the New Living Translations, I, John, your partner in suffering. John's saying, I'm in the same boat you're in. Your partner in, tribu- in um, suffering and in God's kingdom. In other words, we're all members of God's kingdom as Christ followers. And in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. Which is interesting. He says, we're suffering, we're members of God's kingdom, and we're being patient. And I keep thinking... How do patience and suffering go in the same sentence? I'm not patient when I think I'm suffering. I'm very impatient when I think I'm suffering. I want it to end quickly. But John says, no, we're partners in suffering. We're partners in the kingdom of God. And we are partners in patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. He says, I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. Now, I don't know what your context is here. I don't know if you're in a circle or uh, whether at work or, or with friends where you can talk freely about being a Christ follower or if you're trying to figure out who Jesus is, if you can freely ask questions about being a Christ follower or if you're in a place of employment or in a community where you can't say anything, where it's completely politically incorrect to actually voice any thought, any expression about who God is or who Jesus is or or what is even a discussion around that? Because I've talked to people who say, oh, my workplace, if I do that, I could get fired. You say, well, you actually can't get fired for that in Canada. I said, well, maybe you can't officially, but I can unofficially. Right? We live in a country where faith often is being marginalized. And it was interesting, last year, um, if you wanted to hire someone under a student grant, you had to check a box in your application that said that you support abortion. Uh, and uh, many religions rose up against that and said, no, you can't make us do that. That is, that is not uh, uh, in line with freedom of speech as Canadians. And the government backed off on that now in this spring uh, for this next round to give more freedom. And so we said, wait a minute, you can't do that to us as Canadians. And so depending on your context, you may be in a context where it's very difficult, where you don't feel the freedom to speak. And you say, well, what can that look like? Well, When I became a Christ follower 39 years ago, 
I came home from Bible school where I became a Christian, and I was so excited to talk about Jesus, and particularly with my friends from at my church. So I grew up in church. I was religious, but I didn't know Jesus. I became a Christian, so now it's like, oh, I finally get it. It's not just the information. It's about a relationship. He changed my life. I'm so excited about this. I want to talk to my friends. Well, here's what I found out from my church friends. They didn't want to talk about it. And if I wanted to talk about it, then they didn't want to hang out with me. And so I wasn't persecuted. I was just simply not called up when they got together anymore. So it was a form of of peer pressure. It's like, well, if you want to be part of us, then don't talk about Jesus. So it's subtle, but very powerful. Because suddenly the people I'd grown up with since I was this big said, we're actually not interested in hanging out with you if you want to talk about that. So it starts to create conformity. And we start saying, well, I don't want to be alone, so I will conform. I'm afraid of being alone, so I will conform. And John is saying, in the midst of this situation, in the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of whatever your difficulty might be, or your local context or family context, John is writing to the people here in Asia Minor and saying, you know what, I'm going through what you're going through, so I have something to say to you, because I have the same experience you do, that's why I'm on this island. But I want to give you a different picture of reality. And that's his word to us today too. He's speaking from a position of experience, and he says, I want to speak into your reality in the 21st century uh, in Burnaby. And in verse 10, we pick up the story. So he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So there's a word that comes from John, or from the Spirit, through John now, to these churches in these seven cities. It says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The Son of Man is a way to talk about a person, a man, but it's also a reference to Jesus. And John now in worship is getting this orientation, this picture of reality as God wants him to see reality. Friends, this is kind of a side note to this sermon. But one of the things that's so important for us is to recognize that worship prepares us to live in reality. Worship prepares us to live in reality. Why? Because worship gets us oriented to the truth and the reality of who God is. You think about the things that we just sang the statements about God. And when we are singing, when we are reading God's word, when we are praying, when we are worshiping, it actually reorients us to think through the lens, to see through the lens that God has for us rather than being preoccupied with our lens. And so we actually get to step back and, and, and get a new picture of reality. And go, Oh yeah, God, I, man, I was so preoccupied with my stuff. I see who you are. I recognize your sovereignty. I recognize your goodness and your grace and your love and your truth. And now I look through life actually from God's picture rather than just my own. So John was worshiping. And in worship, on the Sunday, he's worshiping. And we don't know if he's worshiping by himself. We don't know if he's worshiping with other people. We're not told that. But as he's worshiping, he has this vision. I was on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, write this down to these seven churches. And he sees a vision of the Son of Man. And I think John would have recognized the Son of Man enough from his time 60 years prior when he walked with Jesus. 
He knew this was Jesus because he uses the word son of man. And I think the Holy Spirit actually twigged in John's heart and mind the book of Daniel. Because the book of Daniel written 600 years earlier is the first reference to son of man. And John would have memorized the book of Daniel as a young boy. In Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, which is a name for God. So Jesus, the son of man, came to God, the ancient of days. And Jesus was presented to God. And to him, to Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so Daniel, when he says, son of, or is writing son of man, he's actually writing about Jesus and John spurred on by the Holy Spirit, references Son of Man in this beautiful prophetic picture written 600 years earlier and says, this is who Jesus is. This is who God has given all authority and power to. And that is the one that he is writing about. And that is the one who is standing in the midst of the lampstands. And we're told later in this passage that the lampstands are a reference to the churches, the seven churches that I listed off. And you notice Jesus is not standing outside of the church. He's not above the church. He's in the midst of the church. Why is that so important? That is so important because Jesus is the one who, who is the author and the originator and the one who builds the church. The book of Matthew tells us that Jesus had said, I will build my church and the gates of hell. Hell itself cannot stop it. So he didn't say, you guys go build my church. He said, I will build my church. Friends, the bride of Christ, which the church is called, is a wonderful and beautiful and glorious thing. In fact, I think it's the most amazing thing on the face of the earth. Now you might say, well, I've you know, seen some pretty crazy churches. Well, there's a human part to the bride of Christ, right? It's us. The church is filled with us. People who are being formed increasingly into the image of God as we follow him. But it's very important that we recognize the bride of Christ for what it is. And we need to be very honoring and very uh, respectful of the bride of Christ. I get quite upset when I hear people put down the church because it's the bride of Christ. Now you say, well, you know, does that mean I can never criticize the church? No, that's not what I'm saying. It's one thing to say the church could do this better. The church, because that's how people are living things out, which is very different than the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is what, is what God is preparing right, for Christ. It's, that's what's called the bride. He is our bridegroom. And so the bride is this wonderful, beautiful thing. Now people will say, well, I've been hurt by the church. Probably if we said, how many people have been hurt by the church? A whole bunch of people put up their hands. I could put up my hand. I'd say, yep, that's happened to me. But that's different than the bride of Christ. Why do I say that? Because when we are hurt by the church, that means that someone or some group of people within the church made a decision or did something that hurt us, right? It's a very human interchange. It's a relational interchange. It's not Jesus as the bridegroom or the bride of Christ who hurt us. It's fallible, messed up people who made a decision or took an action that hurt us somehow. So I was thinking about that and the implications of that. Because on one hand, we should have very high expectations of the bride of Christ because it represents Jesus. On the other hand, it's filled with messed up people like us. So I thought, as a leader, as a pastor, as an elder, what can I promise you from us as leaders? Like, what can I say guaranteed will happen? So here's a few things that I can guarantee you. I can guarantee you we will make mistakes. I can guarantee you that. 
I, get, I can guarantee you that we or I will probably offend you at some point. I can guarantee you that we will say something poorly or do something inappropriate at some point. Probably disappoint you at some point. Probably mishandle a situation at some point. Probably communicate poorly at some point. Probably look unchristian in something we do or say as leaders at some point. Probably we'll need to repent for our actions at some point. And probably we'll need to be forgiven at some point. I can guarantee you all those things. You know what else I can guarantee you? That's all true of you as well. I can guarantee you that. Why? Because we're people. So this beautiful bride, this wonderful thing, is filled with people. Now, people will say to me sometimes, they'll come, hey, pastor, I'm sorry, I found the perfect church, so I'm going to leave Willingdon, and I'm going to the perfect church. It's a few blocks away. I'm going there from now on. It's perfect. I'll say, that's great, but don't go. Well, why shouldn't I go? Because you're going to ruin it. (laughs) What do you mean I'm going to ruin it? Well, I know you. You're not perfect. So if you're going to a perfect church and you go there, it's, that's it. It's not perfect anymore. You've wrecked it. Right? We're messed up. And then people will say, oh, pastor, you know, I'd love to be part of the first century church. I mean, you look at that. The first century, it's like how amazing that people are getting healed and all the kinds of stuff, you know, miracles and signs and wonders. I go, have you read the Bible? The first century church was messed up. That's why we have most of the New Testament is because people like Paul are writing to the church saying, stop it. Stop sinning. Stop hurting each other. Stop offending each other. We read the nice, wonderful parts, but then we miss the other part. And because the church, the beautiful bride of Christ, is filled with us, it's messed up. And yet Jesus never said, well, if you don't like the church, try something else. He didn't say, if you don't like the church, there's a plan B. There's no plan B. It's always been the church. The beautiful bride of Christ, filled with people like us that God is forming into his image as we give our lives to him, follow him in obedience. And meantime, we need to be repenting and forgiving each other all the time. Right? That's who he's writing to. The seven churches uh, in Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. This beautiful bride that he cares about, that he's, he is standing in the middle of as Christ, in our midst, our shepherd, our leader the one who is the pinnacle of the church, the one we worship, the one we want to point everything to. Not to each other, but to him. And then John goes on to say in verse 12, again, I'll read that again. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and I saw, uh, and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in, the, in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. His right hand held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. So we've never seen, uh, people have, have uh, not seen the deified Jesus. And we have no pictures of him. Right? So we can't, people have tried to draw him forever, but we have no pictures of him, no accurate drawings. And John gives us this, these metaphors. These, this is what Jesus looked like. This is what he looked like. And he's doing this, why? Because he wants his readers to get a picture of reality. So we get a picture of reality when we see Jesus as he really is. We get a picture of reality when we see Jesus as he really is. Not how we make him out to be, but as he really is. So Jesus is standing in the midst of the church. The one who John said in verse 5, who loves us and freed us from our sins. 
And he's there caring for us, caring for the churches. The son of man. And what does he look like? Well, first of all, he has, it says he was wearing a robe with a sash around it. And it's, it's an image of the garments of a high priest. Because Jesus is our high priest. And scripture tells us that Jesus is interceding. He's praying for us before the Father. So he has a priestly function for us. And that's what he's dressed like, uh, John tells us. We're told his hair looked like wool, as white as snow. Now, particularly in the ancient world, white hair symbolized wisdom. And you respect people with white hair because they're wise. That's what the what, uh, book of Proverbs tells us. Now, I just want to say some of us have more white hair than others. So I'm just saying. The other thing I'd like to point is, out is I have a lot more white hair than Pastor Ray does. So just, you know, take that for what it's worth. I'll leave that as it is. Jesus was wise. It says his eyes are like blazing fire. It's the eyes that see everything. Psalm 139 tells us that, that God sees us even as we're developing in our, in our mother's womb. He sees everything. There's also the eyes of fire, which is a symbol of righteousness. Because he writes, he rules rightly. Right? He's the righteous one. We're told his feet are like bronze, uh, glowing in a furnace. A sign of his kingdom and the strength of his kingdom. And Psalm 110 verse 1 uh, it says there, it says, the Lord says to my Lord to sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus' enemies will be a footstool. One of the things that happened uh, at that time in history is when a king conquered another kingdom and he would meet the king that he has defeated, often that king would have to go on the ground in submission and one of the things that often the victor, the victor did is put his foot actually on their throat as a, as a symbol of the victory, right? That was one of the things that they did. And Jesus rules. And his feet, uh, his feet are like bronze from a glowing furnace to the strength of his kingdom. In verse 10, his voice is compared to a trumpet. Now it's compared to a rushing river. Obviously a trumpet blast is a voice that you stop and you turn and you look. And a rushing river, same thing. As the river rushes and you walk closer to that river, it's louder and louder. And you see the strength in a rushing river. How it, how it shapes the, the earth around it. And you listen to that sound, the strength of that voice. And that's who Jesus is. Perhaps the strangest part of the, this picture is that there's a sword, a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And later in Revelation chapter 19, John says, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down nations. It is the sword of protection for Christ's followers. It is a sword of judgment for those who rebel against God. And the final description is of his face. Of his face, which is shining like the sun. In Matthew chapter 17, it's the picture of the, the transfiguration on the mountain there and, and it talks about Jesus shining like the sun the full deity of Christ and John paints this picture and John is writing this because I think he wants the churches to understand who is the one who is speaking to them who is the one who wants to give them a new picture of reality in the midst of their persecuted state in the midst of living in a land where the ruler says I am Lord and Savior and John is saying no you are not no, you are not. Jesus is Lord and Savior. How do you respond to a picture of the Lord and Savior when you meet him? How did you respond perhaps the first time that you understood who Jesus was? I know when I finally understood, when I was 18 years old, became a Christ, I was overwhelmed by the goodness and grace of God. I was completely humbled, completely just 
overcome with the fact that God would actually look at me and go, I sent my son to die for you. I don't care what your past is. I remove your shame. I deal with your fears. I paid for your sin. God, that you would think of me. I don't know what your response was. John's response, verse 17, first half says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John sees this unbelievable, glorious vision. And the point is not John thinking, I am so bad, I must fall at his feet. I think the point is, Jesus, you are so glorious, I must fall at your feet. It's not how bad we are, it's how wonderful he is. Right? If it's how bad we are, we're actually still preoccupied with ourselves. In this case, John is saying, you are so amazing. And he falls at his feet. And it's interesting to me how people react when they get this vision of Jesus. Some people do exactly that. They go, oh God, you are so good. This is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. Other people are actually indignant. God, what do you mean I have to repent of something? I'm pretty good, you know. Other people are arrogant. Other people really push back on the thought of needing to submit to the one true God. Other people are offended that a religion that is preached today, a faith that is preached today, is one that in the past history has been used to, to hurt people and make, and make things difficult for them. And they say, well, I'm not going to listen to that because of what happened in history. Friends, humanity has always tried to use any means possible for their own purposes, including Christianity. And because someone misrepresented Jesus does not make the gospel untrue. Because that's not the word from here. That's not the word from here. And that is why we need to respond to Jesus based on, on who he is, not who we think we are. Right? He is the reference point, not us. He is the reference point, not us. Just because current culture tells us we can't find our identity in God and how he made us doesn't mean that it's true. It's actually just simply a rejection of God and his design for us. And when we reject him, we actually reject what's best for our relationships, even though we think we know better. As long as our worldview is focused on us and meeting our needs and our wants and our desires, our relationships will always fall short. Our experiences will always fall short and we will always struggle. But in the midst of John being humbled, I love how Jesus responds. Verse 17, the second half, he says, but he being Jesus laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death in Hades. See, Jesus is responding because he knows John's deepest fear, deepest longings. And Jesus' reality, Jesus's reality meets our deepest longings. Jesus' reality meets our deepest longings. And so when he speaks to John, he's actually, if you translate it literally, he is saying, stop being afraid. It's not just fear not. He's actually saying, I know you're afraid. Stop being afraid. Why should he stop being afraid? He says, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. In other words, I was here from the, from the beginning of time. I am here at the end of time. I am not dead. I am alive. I am the one who actually looked death in the face and conquered death. And the evil one, Satan tried, the most powerful being outside of God, hurled everything at me and I submitted myself to that. And I was put in his prison in death and I came out victorious through resurrection. And not only did I come out victorious, I brought the keys of the prison with me. He says, that's why you do not have to fear. 
That is why you do not have to fear, John, because I am the first and the last. And so Christ followers in Asia Minor, in the seven cities, under the rulership of the one who wants to be called divine, you do not have to fear. In fact, you can stop fearing because I hold the keys to death itself. You do not have to fear because I hold the keys to death itself. Jesus is telling them through John in these difficult situations. In your situation, he's saying, stop fearing because I hold the keys to death itself. See your life with my reality rather than your own reality, God is saying to us. Now, it's interesting. If you're in a difficult situation and you talk to a friend and you know, you're afraid or you're worried or you're anxious, and your friend often might say to you, you know, everything will be okay. And I keep thinking, how do you know? Like, by what authority are you going to tell me everything's going to be okay? You actually have no authority to do that. Now, they may reference scripture and to try and make me feel better. But when Jesus says it, when he says, stop being afraid, he has the authority to say it. Right? He is the one we point to. He says, stop being afraid. He's saying to the people under persecution, stop being afraid. He's saying to Peter, or to John rather, stop being afraid. Because he is the first and the last. He has the authority to say it because he has conquered death. Because he is the one who rules time. Because he is from the beginning and the end. He is the one who will bring history to a close. And that sword picture will bring justice to all. And there will be no more crying and no more pain and no more fear. And God's full reality will be our experience. And not only will it be something we are taught, something that we pray about, something that we, that we sing about, it'll be our firsthand experience because it'll be physically our reality. And he says, I want you to live today as if that is your physical reality. Because he knows fear is a powerful force. Fear can stop us from doing things. We can feel like fear can make us do things. And really all fear is rooted in the fear of death. All fear is rooted in what the end is like. Where will this go? So our fear of rejection, our fear of criticism, our fear of financial loss, our fear of pain, all is worried about the trajectory of our lives. And where is this going? Which is all really a fear of death. And in the midst of that, he says, I have conquered death. So when we're afraid to, to live out our faith, it's actually that end time fear. What will happen to us? How will this play out when we're afraid to love a neighbor because we don't want to be rejected and so we step back? It's because we're actually afraid how things will turn out. Right? Our fear can, can not only stop us from, from trusting in God, our fear will also stop us from doing good things. Our fear will stop us from loving people. But God knows your fear. God knows your fear and he's telling you today, I have conquered death. I hold the keys to the kingdom in my hand. So stop being afraid, friends. Just like the churches of Asia Minor, stop being afraid. And trust in the one who has conquered death. Trust in the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so he says in verse 19, Write therefore, John, write therefore the things you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or the messengers to the churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. He says, I want you to stand against your economic fear. Stand against loss. I want you to stand against those things and live in the reality of the kingdom of God than fear of the unseen, or sorry, fear of your human reality. 
He says, stop being afraid. Because I was dead, but now I'm alive. So I was thinking about this practically in my own life and saying, okay, where have I been afraid? Where have I been afraid? Where have I actually not believed the very thing that I'm speaking today? And I was thinking about the last year and thinking about moving uh, to British Columbia and, and you know, buying uh, a condo at the peak of sort of the, uh, the real estate. And you know, we moved in last month and are settling in and all the bills are coming due for everything that we did. And I was kind of getting worried about this and my wife, bless her heart, she looks at me and she goes, Willie, God's got this. Yes, dear. No, no, God's got this. You think he didn't know what the real estate market was doing when he invited us here? I guess he knew. I can't argue with that one. Do you think he doesn't know what's happening? Do you think he doesn't understand the global scene? Do you think he doesn't know the economy? God's got this. We trust him. God's got this. We walk with him. God's got this. We're going to be obedient with him. Because to do anything less is to live in our reality rather than his. And then we live with our results rather than his. Then we live with our emotions rather than his. We live in our perspective rather than his. So friends, whatever it is, the word that Peter is writing to that first century church to say, stop being afraid because I am the first and the last. I hold the keys to the kingdom and I, and I defeated death and I hold the keys to that prison is the same word to you today. It's exactly the same word. And I pray that God would give you a vision of Christ like he gave Peter. Whether that's through scripture, whether that's through worship, whether that's through your prayer life to go, how are you going to respond to the one who is king of kings, who is Lord of lords? The one who has defeated death, regardless of whatever situation you're in. And if you've never made the decision to give your life to Christ, I'm going to give you a chance to do that in a moment, to say, to respond to that picture of who he is, the one who has forgiven your sin, the one who removes your shame, the one who conquers your fear. Because when we live in reality, when we see, we live in reality when we see life through the unseen realities of Jesus and his kingdom. When we live in reality, we see life through the unseen realities of Jesus and his kingdom, which gives perspective to everything. It gives perspective to everything. Let's stand for closing prayer. So I just want to pray, if anyone has never made the decision to follow Christ, I will pray a simple prayer you can pray with me and then I will uh, pray for those uh, who are Christ followers here this morning. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for sacrificing your life on the cross to forgive my sin, to remove my shame, to deal with my fear. You conquered the powers of sin and death and evil that day. And I thank you for that. Jesus, come and forgive my sin. Fill my life with your, with your spirit. Be my leader from this day forward. I give my life to you. Help me to walk in greater understanding and in faith and in community to understand how to live out the new identity I have in you. And Father, for all of us here today, for whatever we're struggling with, whether it's worry or concern or control or fear, I pray in this moment we would give those things to you. Because I know in return you give us peace and you give us joy and you give us comfort as we live in your truth, your reality, rather than what we see in the world around us. And Father, just like in the first century, for people who are under a cruel leader who are being marginalized 
and you said, stop being afraid. You say to us who live in much greater freedom, much greater opportunity, stop being afraid because fear is still something that so often grips our hearts. So Father, I pray that we would give those things to you. Each one of them. Specifically, even in this moment. And we would say, God, in return, give us your peace. Grow my trust and my obedience to you. And guide me every day in how I live out what it means to be a Christ follower. Thank you, Father, that you do that. Go with us as we walk into this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.